0: Podcast One Production.
1: Welcome to State Crime Command Investigations. I'm Adam Shand. Not everyone that goes missing wants to be found. People go missing for different reasons, and it's not a crime to disappear. In these cases, police balance the concern of loved ones with that individual's right to privacy. In 2006, 32 year old Moses Carver cut ties with his family. This is The Search for Moses.
2: So just after Mo went missing in 2007, I left Australia to go and study hotel management in Switzerland, and I ended up staying in Europe
1: permanently. William Kerwin is Moses Carver's brother. William was just 17 when Moses ceased contact with his family. For the past 14 years, he's been looking for him whenever he can. I only came back to
2: Australia a handful of times, between 2007 and 2019. And each time I tried to make sure I'd spend a few days in Sydney so I could look for Mo. even in 2013 and 2015. My wife and I got married in 2018 and we wanted to save up and do quite a big trip, kind of like a one-year trip before we settle down and have a family. And that's why we came back to Australia. And before we actually made the trip, I was driving back from Bern to Zurich and a song came on the radio. And it was quite a sad song and I was thinking about Mo and I I told my wife uh, about it. And I turned 30 last year and she said, Maybe for your 30th birthday I can offer you a gift and we can hire a private investigator to really help look for Mo so that when we arrive, we've got something to go off. We might have an address or a phone number. And so she was great, she did that, and we we
1: organised a private investigator. There were five siblings in William's family. Moses and his older brother, Illy, were born in Fiji. Their mum, Oni Kerwin, was the daughter of a chief. She divorced their father and later married again to an Australian and had three more children, Andrea, Latia and William. Sadly, in 1999, that marriage also broke up, with devastating consequences for the family.
3: I'd been married twice, and this was what was taking me into all my problems, all the problems of this uh, divorce. So when I left in 1999, I had died to everything I remembered and also to all my children. So it fell to
1: William, the youngest of Mo's siblings to begin a search in 2020. His career in hotel management in Switzerland could wait. The family unit since the divorce was
2: quite split up. And I think that also played a a major role in us never really looking for Mo and not going through the official channels and making a joint effort out of it. I was ready to give it everything to find Mo uh, we would be in Australia for about four months, three of which we'd be in Sydney. So I knew I was just going to spend all day, every day trying to find Mo. I just naturally assumed that he had probably settled down and maybe had a wife, maybe even one or two kids. And it just made up his mind that he didn't want to contact the family. I even imagined what I was going to say when I saw him. And in case he walked off, I was going to give him a letter with a few things that I wanted to see.
1: The private investigator searched all public databases, state and federal, looking for a digital footprint to provide a starting point for William's search. In 2003, Moses registered a company in New South Wales called MacG World. He had dreams of becoming a world class DJ back then. After that, there was nothing no social media, no voter registration, not a mention. In his report, the PI concluded that after 2003, Moses had left the grid. He might have been interstate or even overseas.
2: I got that report in the first week of arriving back in Australia. And by that time, I was already walking around the streets of Marrickville, just asking questions. I used to go for runs in the area and was stopping by the local soup kitchens and the homeless shelters, and just checking in and seeing if his name popped up in any of the databases, uh, which it never did. I think two or three weeks into looking for Mo and when I hadn't found him yet, my hope was starting to diminish. I was starting to think that maybe I'll never find him and I was ready after these few months of looking for him. If I didn't find him, I'd find a way to move on and I was ready to close that door and that's when I decided to stop by the police station in Newtown, and that's when everything started.
4: Hi, my name's Senior Constable Brendan Lim. I'm a plainclothes senior constable at Inwest Detectives. I've been in the police force for just over seven years. So on the 9th of March, 2020, I was allocated the missing persons case, and a senior constable, Louise Mendyke had taken the report, and she'd already started making the initial inquiries with the help of the Missing Persons Unit who would given advice on the next step to go and had assisted in contacting the other states and AFP. So I started to review the previous events and I noticed that a private investigator had been hired beforehand by William. I started looking through that and asked both William and Oni to come in a few days later. When they came in I just um, spoke to them about Moses, to try and get an understanding of him and get a background story of him and his family. Oni explained
1: how the story of Moses' absence and the family's history were possibly linked.
3: He was always in the shadow of his older brother, Eli, and um, they are children from my first marriage. And uh, when I left in 1979, I sent them to my parents on the island of Matuku, and they lived there for about a year. He was uh, I think four at the time, and Ely was seven.
1: Onie had married again to an Australian man called Douglas Kerwin, and they were building a new family in Townsville, Queensland.
3: I had uh, intended to bring them across. Their stepfather didn't share that idea, but this was more because he was on a, a small wage and he didn't think that he could afford to have both of them. But anyway, they both came but their transition was good because their rugby skills were so good, they became instant stars on the football ground. And Mo was so good <laughs> that uh, the Queensland team or one of the teams picked him. This boy was so skilled in every way that uh, the teachers or the, some of the parents would come to pick him up every Saturday morning to take him to the football
1: Tony and her new husband, Doug, now had three children plus two teenagers, Illy and Mo, living in the house.
3: I couldn't cope with the three little ones under four and the two big ones, 14 and 11. The older they were getting, the more social problems that were coming home. And Mo started to take marijuana at about 14 um, His eyes dilate and he can't concentrate in that time. So I didn't realize that this was the effects of marijuana on a kid like that. So when uh, he was expelled from grammar school because of marijuana, I think it was in grade 10, Doug came home and found him there expelled from school and said, it's either him or me. So it's either he goes or I go. And Mo looked at me with his big eyes and just tears flowing down his face. And he walked out. There was nothing said.
1: Moses was 15 at the time in year 10. He was exiled to live with a friend's family on Magnetic Island off Townsville. That was the end of school for him. Mo stayed for six weeks in the islands until his stepfather got him a job with his brother Illy working on drilling rigs in the outback.
3: So I got Mo back from Magnetic Island and his face was just beaming with a big smile when he got off at the jetty. So I put him on the bus up to Cairns and he was on the rig straight away at about 15 years. He went out on the rig cooking and cleaning up in the drilling camp. And then uh, after that, he became a driller, eventually at 17.
1: After being kicked out of home at such a young age, this was a turn for the better in Moses' life.
3: Yes, it was a joy to see both of them because by then, Ely had become a senior driller at 21. They had contracts. The quicker they drilled the hole, the quicker they got paid. So when they came home, they each bought a car,
1: The place was just uh, full of energy. William
3: Kerwin, Growing up
2: in Townsville until the age of about 11, Mo was the only real male role model that I had as a kid. My dad was a geologist, so he'd be gone for months on end, working to provide for the family. So I got to spend a lot of time with my brother, and I kind of idolised him at that age because he was this cool, good-looking guy, and he had a beautiful blonde girlfriend back then.
1: Mo was working hard and loving his life, but in 1994, disaster struck. He was driving back to Townsville from a job in the Northern Territory. He fell asleep at the wheel and drove off a bridge, sustaining a serious head injury.
3: When I went to the hospital, I found him in such a bad, you know, he was like an elephant man. And he wanted to fly back to Townsville with me, but the doctor said, you can't fly. He said the pressure would hurt his head. But uh, a few days later, he arrived in Townsville, knocked on the front door. He had a cap on, but his head was still heavily bandaged. He'd driven down with a mate of his from Darwin to Townsville, that's uh, quite a distance. He stayed for about a month or a few weeks, and then he was back at work. But he was out every night after that. And that's probably why I didn't think that the accident had any effect on him, because he was out partying every night.
1: His family believes Mo was never the same after the accident. He seemed to recover well physically, but his path in life seemed to change. He lost interest in drilling. He moved to Melbourne, working in security to finance a new career as a nightclub DJ. In 2000, he moved to Sydney and things seemed to be happening for him. William Kerwin.
2: When my parents got divorced, we moved down to Melbourne and I was about 12 years old then. And at that time, Mo was working as a DJ in Sydney. But every couple of months, he would come down and visit us in Melbourne for a week or so. And he would wake me up about 1 or 2 a.m. and we'd go for these long walks into town. And he would talk about his plans to become a famous DJ and how much money he would earn and how he would buy us all these nice things and that we'd be living the good life.
1: In 2002, Mo was in Cairns in far north Queensland working in demolition. Then he was back in Sydney to give his DJ dream another go. And I remember
2: that I started to realize that these grand plans that he had to become successful weren't really becoming a reality. I realized then that perhaps he wasn't all he was making himself out to be, even though he really seemed to believe it, and maybe that links back to the mental health issues he had. But it just seemed like it was all talk, I guess. The dream had passed him by. When he was in his mid-twenties, things were actually moving forward, and he did start a company. He was trying to do stuff, but too many years went by without any real results.
1: In 2005, Oni had left the family and was living in Canberra. Moses turned up at the house and stayed for a few weeks. It didn't end well between mother and son.
3: It finished on a night in Canberra where I had to put him out the door because it was just unbearable. He'd been staying with me and locked the room in which he was. So in the end, I had to... uh, ask him to have a shower and come out and live normally. But by then, he had this real fear of something. They seemed like demonic oppressions for me to look at. And that was when I I said, listen, you have to either shape up or ship out. And uh, that was the last night we saw each other. 2005, I think it was, before I reported uh, him in
1: November of the same year that he was missing. William Cohen. We just thought he
2: went back to Sydney and I remember maybe trying to call him once or twice, but he didn't pick up. And back in those days, you didn't really stay in touch as much as you do today with social media. So it was relatively normal to go for a few months without hearing from him. It was more of a gradual thing, I guess, where eventually we realised he wasn't making contact with any of us. And that's when my mum decided to fill in that missing persons
1: report. As a result of Oni's report, police made contact with Moses on the streets
4: of Merrickville, Senior Constable Lim. In August 2006, Moses was stopped by police and at that time he was still reported as a missing person. So the officer at the time has spoken to Mo where he's said, well, you're a missing person and just checking on her welfare. And at that time... Moses indicated to that police officer that he was been living homeless and the officer said, contact your family, just speak with them. From the account of the report, Moses acknowledged that he would. As it turned out, Moses never did contact his family back, but the police officer actually spoke to only uh, the next day, where he said, you know, we'd spoken to Moses and he's living here in Marrickville." William Kerwin.
1: Well, they couldn't tell
2: us where they found him because Mo was still an adult and they couldn't reveal his whereabouts if he didn't want them to. So all the police could do was tell my mum, look, we found him, he's in good spirits, it looks like he might be living a bit rough, but he's not willing to come back to the family yet. And
1: that's all the information that they could give us. Working from the file, it seemed to Senior Constable Brandon Lim that Mo's living arrangements became increasingly precarious from about 2003.
4: Moses did have a few other addresses here in Marrickville. It was between areas of Dowage Hill, which was a boarding house type of establishment. He also had another address in Sydney, which is where the old abandoned Coptic church used to be. From my experience, I knew that was a place where homeless people used to go as a place of shelter. So I seen, when I first saw those addresses, it looked like he'd been living homeless for quite some time. There's quite a big time gap between 2008 to 2011, where we ha- we don't really know too much about who he was with or, or who he knew and who whose sort of circle of friends would have been.
2: So in 2011, when my sister does have an encounter with him, this was a big deal because none of us had really seen or heard from him in 5 or 6 years. She was working for a non-profit organization at the time and she was raising awareness and collecting donations outside the Woolworths in Marrickville. And it was winter and she saw someone walking towards her. She could tell he was Fijian so she gave him a Fijian greeting and he asked her what they were doing and she said they were collecting donations and then he said he would come back out after buying groceries a few minutes later he comes back out and while talking to her she recognizes his voice and realizes who he is so she says Mo it's me and he hasn't told her his name yet so it took him a little while to realize but meanwhile Latia is asking him where he's been and that we've been looking for him and that we miss him and that Our oldest brother, Illy, now has a son, and that's when he kind of just cut her off and said, I'm sorry sis, I gotta go, I'm running late for work. And This was obviously very emotionally traumatic for my sister, because after all this time to just kind of walk away, this was really heartbreaking. The main thing that she said was that first of all, he didn't look homeless and secondly he said he was running late for work so all of us just kind of assumed that he's not homeless, he's gotten back on his feet he's doing alright, he's just still not ready to come back to the family it was also in the middle of winter so he was wearing like a bomber jacket and she said he, he looked normal, it wasn't like he was wearing anything old or worn out but most of the time that we knew Mo he had a shaved head but this time he'd grown quite long dreadlocks, Latia mentioned even down to towards his lower back, and I guess she just wasn't expecting to see him looking like that.
1: That was in about June 2011, the last family contact with Mo. Armed with that narrative, Brandon Lim began looking at the private financial records of Moses Carver that the PI couldn't access to work out when Mo had left the grid
4: entirely. I started to go through his bank statements, to try and work out when these accounts were last used and where they last used. When I was doing this, I noticed that on the 15th of December in 2011, the last transaction that Moses made was at Bunnings in Mascot. i had emailed Bunnings to try and work out what it was last thing that he'd purchased. After this Bunnings transaction, I noticed that his bank accounts just suddenly stopped. His transactions before, they were quite regular, every day or two days or so. But after this date, on the 15th of December, it just stopped.
1: So, on the 15th of December 2011, Mo made a purchase of $399 in a hardware store in Mascot, not far from where he used to live. Brandon Lim didn't yet know what Mo had bought and how significant that evidence might be in unravelling the mystery of his whereabouts.
4: When I first received the case and was going through Mo's last events, I noticed that he hadn't been stopped or spoken to by police too much. What I was trying to look for was places that he'd been or frequented so I could go to those places and see if he still was there. I knew that he was homeless from what Oni had told me, so I started to contact some of the soup kitchens around the city area. I also contacted a bunch of hospitals in the Sydney area to see if they had any records of Moses. Over the next few days, I started receiving reports from the hospital that they had no records of of Moses.
1: It's a cliché in the police, but it holds true. The answer is usually to be found in the file. And so it proved in Moses Carver's case. Plainclothes Senior Constable Brandon Lim went back through all the reports of Mo's interactions with police in inner-city Sydney. Contrary to what he told his sister in 2011, Moses Carver had been homeless for more than seven years at this point. So, where had he been living?
4: Mo had been seen in Tempe and in Irwood. Those reports were calls from the people of the community to say that there's a homeless person living in this park. Then police had gone there, had spoken to him, seen that he was just a homeless person, that it appeared to be okay, no real issues, so then they just made a record and left him be.
1: One information report from October 2006 caught Brandon Lim's attention. It was from a uniform officer,
0: then Constable Peter King. My name's Senior Constable Peter King. I'm at Inner West as well. I've been in the police for about, coming on, 20 years. So, back in 2006, I was working in general duties and on the push bikes at Marrickville Police Station. At that time, I met Moses Carver a couple of times, just saw him around the street. I've spoken to him on a few occasions. Then on the 15th of October, 2006, patrolling on the push bikes, I was riding along the Cook River. At that point, I was passing the mausoleum of Thomas Holt.
1: The family mausoleum had been created in a natural rock overhang with thick stone walls that contained 10 burial niches. But the builder, Thomas Holt, and his family were not interred there. A very wealthy man, Holt owned a vast network of insurance agencies and hospitals. He was in the wool trade and gold mining, railways, and many other businesses. In 1857, Holt purchased land at Marrickville and built a home called the Warren that was a landmark for years. Holt returned to England in 1881 and sold the house but kept the land around it, including the mausoleum that he called the Machpelah, or the Cave of the Patriarchs, Abraham's burial site in the Bible. Holt wrote on his departure from Sydney, Thank God it has not yet received a tenant. A few years later, Holt died in England and was buried there, leaving his Sydney mausoleum empty for more than a century. Maybe that had
0: changed in 2006. Peter King again. As I was riding past, I noticed that there was a small cave type of thing next to the mausoleum, and I noticed there was a piece of material and had been draped over a couple of milk crates. Obviously, being suspicious as I am, I had to go and investigate it. So I walked up into the cave, moved the milk crates and the material, crawled in on my stomach, because it was quite a small little cave. You had to crawl in on your stomach. Went in for about four to five metres, the cave. The shallow cave, more like a burrow, led to the corner of the stone wall where it met with the rock face. There was an opening just big enough for a man to enter the crypt. As I was crawling into the cave, I was calling out, hello, hello. It looked like the little cave had fresh movements in it. So anyway, I'm halfway up through the cave and I hear this voice. And it says, excuse me, this is my home. Do you mind? Obviously being a bit startled that someone was actually in there, I said, sorry, mate, do you mind coming out? I just want to have a chat with you. So I crawled back out, out of this little cave. And about two minutes later, Moses came crawling out of the cave as well. Obviously, I recognised Mazes at the time. And I'd seen him a few times and spoken to him once or twice. So after Moses comes out of the little cave, I'm having a chat with him just to find out what he's doing there, if he's living there. He's very internalised. You could tell he had some kind of mental illness, possibly schizophrenia. You don't know. But when you're speaking to him, you can tell there's more going on in his mind than just the conversation between you and him. As he comes out, I would probably describe him as being slightly dishevelled, He wasn't too bad, but you can tell he wasn't really looking after himself. But he seemed happy. There was nothing to suggest that he was going to do himself any harm or he was going to hurt anyone else. He was just living in this cave and he was happy living in that cave. I found him to be quite suspicious and defensive, which I had to break through those communication barriers, obviously, to get the information that I required. To do that, I had to let him know that he hadn't been doing anything wrong that it was okay for him to live there and that I wasn't there to harass him or intrude on his way of life or anything like that, only that I wanted to know his details just because I was worried something might happen to him in that cave or anywhere else, and I'd just like to know who's living in the area. At the time, I was thinking the potentiality of what could happen if he died in that cave. So I'll talk into Moses Eventually, I got to his family and I asked him about his family, if he had family in the area or anything like that. He told me that he didn't and that he hadn't spoken to his family for a while. And then I brought up, what if something happened to you? Would you want your family to know about it? I noticed that he had to think about it and he decided to give me the information with his details. He didn't really want to talk much other than to tell me that he was felt safe living in this cave. He doesn't cause any trouble and that he wasn't doing anything wrong. And I respected that, and that was it. I got his details, and I put an intel on in relation to him living in that cave. Brandon Lim.
4: Going through those reports is when I came across the intel report that was made by Peter King in 2006. So I had a read of it and saw that he was seen living at this Thomas Holt mausoleum. I essentially said, hey, Pete, do you remember this person called Moses Carver? And I reminded him about this report they put in 2006 and then he sort of goes, oh, yeah, actually, I do. And he told me about what happened when he seen him and that it's very well likely that he could be still be there. So we've come down to the mausoleum.
1: The Thomas Holt mausoleum is just a few metres from a bicycle track by the Cooks River. There's a small seating area in front of the sandstone burial vault. Unlike 2006, there were no signs of recent activity vegetation was growing in the small cave formed where the natural overhang met the sandstone blocks of the crypt.
4: Peter's decided that he'll crawl through to see if he's still in there.
0: It's a small hole you pretty much crawling in on your stomach. There's no room around you. You couldn't fit two people in at once, that's for sure. So I'd never been all the way in. So when I got finally got to the back of the hole, there was two milk crates that were blocking the entrance between the end of the hole into the mausoleum. So I've had to push them forwards and slide my way into it. I remember when I first got in there, there was a lot more room than I realised, So the size of the mausoleum would be about five or six metres by four metres. The floor was very uneven. There was carpet on a lot of the floor. There were bits of belongings all around the area. Just inside the entrance were like a small gas stove with some cooking utensils and a pot. So at that point, I just stayed at that junction between the end of the cave and into the mausoleum. Had a conversation with Limmy, yelling out to him. We decided that... I'd come out and grab his phone so I could do a recording on his phone of just what was in there. And the second time I went in, I went in a little bit deeper and at that point I was came up towards the front of the muslim a bit and when I turned to my right, I could see what was looked like a leg bone and then got up a little bit further and that at that point I could see a human skull. So then I called out to Detective Lim. I said, he's here. And his response was, what? I said, he's here. And he went a bit quiet. SC Limb.
4: When Peter called out to me, I didn't really know what to think. Wasn't sure what he meant by that he found him. So I've called out and even though we're really a few metres away, the mausoleum bricks is so thick that we're pretty much shouting to hear each other. And I've gone out, is he alive or is he deceased? Then he's replied back that he's deceased. So at 9.20am on the 24th of March 2020, we declared the Thomas Holt mausoleum a crime scene.
1: It was a confronting image. All that was left of the body after nine years were bones and perched on the skull was a set of headphones. On closer inspection, Lim found a hole in the back of the skull the size of a 50 cent
4: piece. What I was looking for there at that time was signs of foul play. When I first located Moses on the 24th, I called William and Oni the next day and I'd asked them to come in in the afternoon. It was a difficult moment because I knew that I had to be careful. I didn't want to say that this was definitely their son because technically the identity hadn't been confirmed. But because where he was found that he'd been stopped there and because we'd found his ID, we had a strong suspicion of, that this would be Moses. It was important that I had to tell them that step. I knew that they would already believe it was him anyway, or completely disbelieve that it was him. So I had to, though I couldn't technically say that it was Moses at this point, because we needed to just confirm that through our DNA testing.
1: William Kirwan.
4: And he called us the next day and gave us the news. I knew
2: something was wrong when he called me and asked me to come in with my mother. And I said, well, I can probably come in, I'm not too sure about my mum. And then he said, I think it's best that the two of you come in together. And so I called my mom and told her we had to go in and that they have news. But I didn't want to tell her too much. So we went in and saw Brandon and he said they found Mo's remains, which was devastating, as you can imagine. It was really the last thing any of us expected. And I guess just to hear about the situation that he was living in was really saddening as well. To know that he actually had been homeless and that he'd passed away so long ago that there were only skeletal remains and that was just really, really hard. Only Kerwin. I, I couldn't believe it. I, I
3: just uh, didn't think that Mo would be found dead. That was uh, just uh, a horrific feeling for me. I had always thought that, with his experience, he was streetwise enough to stay
1: alive. We don't know what killed him. Brandon Lim's task was to prepare a brief for the New South Wales coroner, who would determine the cause of death. Moe's skull had a hole in the back the size of a 50 cent piece, but the file again provided an answer. In 1994, Mo had been in a car accident and surgeons had to remove a piece of his skull to relieve pressure on his brain. So this was discounted. Mo's skeleton gave up no clues to his fate, so Lim went back to the mausoleum.
4: Inside it was full of his personal property, so clothes, bags of stuff, toys. Along the side of the wall, he had made himself like a kitchen sort of breakfast bench so they had a gas cooker with pots and pans on top. And utensils. Then as you go into what would be sort of the main area, our living part, there was mattresses that was in the middle of the mausoleum. Behind the mattresses he had a CD stacker with hundreds of CDs, DVDs and CDs, both music and all different movies from those times. He had a shelf which was stacked full of racing TAB forms. In front of the bed there was another shelf that had little figurines that were placed on top of the shelf. A wine cork board, which had cutouts of famous people and they were pinned to the board. You also had hanging off the corner of that cork board was one of the Islander island shell necklaces. Also another shelf which had a portable DVD player that was set up. What that portable DVD was plugged into an extension cord and that extension cord actually wrapped around through the mausoleum back towards the entrance. And amongst all of his clothing and all of his shoes and all these other items that he collected was the portable generator just by the entrance there.
1: The body had completely decomposed, leaving only skeletal remains, which had collapsed forward as the mattress had sunk into the damp floor of the crypt. Mo was still wearing headphones that were plugged into the portable DVD player.
4: The way the scene looked, the way Moses was there, he was laying on his bed with the headphones on, watching the DVD player at the time that he's died or that he's fallen asleep or passed out watching a movie on the DVD player. So the DVD player was plugged into a petrol generator and we noticed that it was quite a new generator. It stood out, it didn't look weathered or didn't look old like much of the other stuff that was inside that mausoleum. After seeing that, we noticed that the box of the generator was also inside the mausoleum.
1: To this point, Lim had been looking for signs of murder, but then he remembered Mo's financial transactions. The last was in December 2011, a $399 purchase from Bunnings.
4: It was actually when I was reviewing the footage from the, when I videoed inside and in photos. That's when I saw the generator in there, that's when it sort of struck out. When all oh, that's a generator. That's an item that you would get from Bunnings. Could this have been the last thing that he bought from Bunnings? I believe I already sent off the information to Bunnings, but I hadn't received a reply. When we did go into the mausoleum, we knew that it was on the 15th of December, but we didn't know what he actually bought yet. A few days later, they were able to send me a copy of the actual printout receipt. It was a Kipor petrol generator that he bought that day.
1: Mo Carver had bought a 700-watt petrol-powered generator, which was about the size of a small esky. These are designed for outdoor use, and you're advised to never use one within five metres of your home, let alone inside a crypt. Carbon monoxide is an odourless, colourless gas that kills without warning. It claims the lives of hundreds of people every year. Mo had positioned the generator just a metre from his bed. He would have been overwhelmed by the fumes within minutes in the stuffy atmosphere of the crypt. This was now looking like death by misadventure. Mo had miscalculated the risk of the generator, which incidentally was silent running. For some time, Mo had been using a burner for cooking powered by butane, which produces only carbon dioxide and water when it burns.
4: Yeah, and the gas cooker was only a small sort of portable gas cooker with the the small little butane refill rechargeable ones. It was towards the entrance, so he may have had some idea that the fumes from the gas cooker would leave through the exit.
1: So, the burner was placed near the entrance of the crypt, allowing some ventilation. The generator was right by Moe's bed. A fatal error, perhaps. The generator does come with clear and explicit warnings about its lethal potential when used indoors. Moe might have seen these warnings as he unboxed his new generator on December 15, 2011, and ignored them. He filled the tank with petrol, turned on the power
4: and settled back to watch a film. When we went back in to do the secondary search, noticed that it was still switched on, and looking inside, it was empty. And the crypt
1: remained undisturbed ever since, frozen in time at the 15th of December 2011, when Moses switched on the generator and selected a movie. The movie was Changeling, a 2008 mystery based on real-life events.
4: So the case is actually still before the coroner's now. So in terms of a final cause of death, hasn't been determined by the coroner yet. After the second search, I then began to build my report to the coroner as to why I cause of death. And it was at that time that I had spoken to William and I said, given that the generator was in there in the confined space, that my leading sort of hypothesis as for a cause of death is gonna be from carbon monoxide poisoning from that generator.
1: There is no evidence that Mo took his own life. His family is coming to terms with the choices that Moe made, which ended in Machpelah, Thomas Holt's cave of the patriarchs. Oni Kerwin.
3: You know, I'm a Christian person and I uh, read the Bible and I pray and I know that there is a, the world of the spirit. I'm aware of that. And uh, where he was found was just like he had uh, abandoned himself into the the world of the dead, really. And that was uh, an area I had to, uh, had to really uh, grapple
1: with. William Cohen.
2: The only comforting thing that Brandon could tell us was that despite being homeless, Mo had set himself up quite well in the sense that he was protected from the elements and that he would have been quite dry and warm and he had all his comforts in there. So I've discussed this with the family and after we heard the news, we don't actually believe that Mo considered himself homeless. He thought he'd probably found a way to kind of beat the system and was living rent-free in this small but protected space and in there he had his DVDs, a small stove and,
1: and a generator as well. The search for Moses Carver ended tragically. At least his family now knows how his story ended. There are many families of missing persons who never get that chance.
3: I think Brandon has really rescued our family in the sense that he found Mo. I know he's a man doing his own work, but we refer to him very fondly within the family because he was the one that brought this uh, life back to us.
1: Moses' mother, Oni, had withdrawn from family life after her divorce and Mo's disappearance.
3: I never got in touch with the children again after that. Whether it was birthday or any day, I just didn't. Even at William's wedding, it was like going to somebody else's function. I was already dead to my children. I. It was like I didn't know them anymore. But Mo has really brought me back alive in that sense. Because on the day we went to see his remains at the uh, morgue, I said, you know, if <laughs> this is something I had died to. And the irony is, that the death of Mo has brought me alive again to my connection to the children and to Mo. And then all these emotions came that day. So we wept together, William and I, as we were alone, saying hello and goodbye to Mo for the first time. It, It reflected the day I walked into the hospital in Darwin. He was all wrapped up in white sheets and white bandages, everything. Only this time, it was almost like that with a crack on the head facing us when we walked in. And uh, that image just brought me back to life.
2: The search for Mo has almost been like an excavation of our past as a family. Mo was a very family-oriented person, very sensitive. And in a way, his parting gift was to bring us together again. And I think that's the silver lining that we look at. We're now having a lot more contact together as a family with our parents and together as siblings. And that just wasn't there beforehand. So we like to think that was Mo's parting gift.
3: You know, we kind of know that his spirit is with us. You know, he's moving with us. And I think that's very comforting to know that the spirit is alive maybe next week they will bring the ashes back to me. I think William and the girls are arranging for uh, the type of urn in which they want the ashes to be in. These things um, bring up the cultural uh, thing in us. I don't know if everybody does that, but we do as BGNs.
1: The formal investigation is over, but Mo's family still have questions. What was Mo doing in those lost years? And who was he with? A mobile telephone was found in the crypt but the stored contacts have not yielded any new information as yet. We would urge anyone who knew Mo in these years to get in touch with Crime Stoppers. We've included a photograph of Mo on the State Crime Command Investigations Facebook page. Mo's story is not unique. If you have information about a missing person or you've lost someone, This case demonstrates the value of even the smallest piece of information. Hopefully, that jogs a memory for those who knew Moses.
2: We would love to hear from anyone who may have had any contact with him in those final years. It would be very comforting for us as a family.
1: Mo's life and potential was lost in that crypt. But there is an enduring truth for other families in this case. Mo's loved ones could not alter the choices he made. But they now realise they could have better monitored his welfare and well-being by reaching out to police earlier.
2: We would like to really encourage other families to come forward if you haven't heard from a loved one. And if there's anything we regret, I wish we'd known that such a service existed
1: within the police force. State Crime Command Investigations is a production of Podcast One Australia in collaboration with the New South Wales Police Force. Written and produced by Adam Shand Executive producer, Grant Tothill Original music and mixing by Matt Nikolich. The associate producer, Sarah Grinberg Research by Nolly Way Shand